In 2007, Dr. Fei-Fei Li started work on a project that would change the way in which artificial intelligence was created forever. Li, a computer scientist at Stanford University, was interested in the process by which computers analyse images and their ability to identify what's in them. But rather than focus on the algorithms themselves, she was interested in the datasets that we use to train artificial intelligence. Lee and her team went on to start a project called ImageNet, and they would create one of the first large-scale open access datasets that could be used to train machine learning algorithms. As Lee herself put it, their aim was to map out the entire world of objects. ImageNet was revolutionary. Every year, from 2010 to 2017, they ran a competition in which teams of researchers aimed to develop algorithms that could assess and label the objects in the dataset. In the seven years that the competition ran, the winning accuracy in classifying objects in the dataset rose from 71.8% to 97.3%, surpassing human abilities. And key to this huge increase was a novel combination of a specific type of machine learning known as convolutional neural networks and the unprecedented scale and accuracy of the ImageNet dataset. Using these two in combination enabled massive advances in AI, which have since been applied to all types of areas, becoming the blueprint for how AI is developed in the modern world. And ImageNet data stood at the heart of this. It was a gold standard dataset of high resolution images with detailed labels and annotations, the accuracy of which was assured. It was a dataset of a size and a quality that the world had not seen before. But how do you build a dataset of millions of images, each with their own labels that say exactly in detail what the image denotes? You can't get computers to do this for you because, well, if you could, then there wouldn't actually be any need for the dataset to exist in the first place. And this is a dataset that includes labels of emotions and feelings. To label these requires a level of intelligence and interpretation. To compile the dataset, Lee needed people to do it. Her team needed thousands of hours of human labor to annotate and label images ready for them to be added to the dataset. And here is where things get interesting. Her first plan was to hire Stanford undergraduates and pay them $10 an hour to do the work. But after some trials and a few calculations, they realized that to get enough data to map out the entire world of objects using only Stanford undergraduate students, it would take them roughly 90 years. They tried technical solutions, but these all failed. So they were stuck. Then, in a chance conversation in a hallway, a graduate student asked Lee if she had ever heard of a website called Amazon Mechanical Turk. Now, Amazon Mechanical Turk is a microwork platform where workers from around the world complete short tasks for pay. A digital meeting space to connect workers and employers regardless of their geographic whereabouts. By turning to Mechanical Turk, 
that Labour Paul Lee had access to had just expanded from Stanford's California campus to the entire globe. Lee could use Mechanical Turk's API to automatically distribute image labelling tasks out to workers and then pay them. Ultimately, a grand total of 49,000 workers across 167 countries were involved in the project. And collaboratively, they labelled 15 million different images. As Lee would later say, one thing ImageNet changed in the field of AI is suddenly people realised the thankless work of making a dataset was at the core of AI research. Now we tend to think of this work as performed by computer scientists, but what about the 49,000 people involved in creating the ImageNet database who remain unthanked? whose names will never appear on academic papers, nor will they be invited to accept prizes and give TED Talks. In the next three episodes of the Fair Work Podcast, I want to turn to this hidden labour force, off of whose back AI research and development is based. I'm Robbie Warren, and this is the Fair Work Podcast. Enjoy the show. I wanted to kick off with a bit of context, and so I turned to Dr. Kelly Housen, former head of cloud work at Fair Work. Kelly recently left Fair Work, but remained a close collaborator and Fair Work fellow. To start off with, I just wonder if you could kindly introduce yourself. I'm Kelly Housen. I'm a postdoctoral researcher with the Fair Work Project at the Oxford Internet Institute, where, among other things, I have headed up the Cloudwork project uh, for the last couple of years. Great. Thank you so much for joining us, Kelly. Um, yeah, it's such a, such an honour and a privilege to have you uh, back on the podcast. Um, I wonder if you could start us off by just kind of talking through and kind of helping us understand what is uh, a Cloudwork platform uh, and how can we understand them as a category of of digital labor platform amongst all of the other different types right so cloud work is a term that we use at fair work um but it's not a term that everybody uses there are a lot of different words that people use to describe um this kind of work and this kind of business model um you might have heard crowd work micro work crowdsourcing um some people just use online work or online remote work uh, so these these definitions are overlapping. Um, we use Cloudwork because it, it's a little bit broader and it encompasses a number of these different types of work. But basically, Cloudwork platforms are a subcategory of digital labor platforms. Uh, and digital labor platforms are um, platforms that mediate uh, the labor process. They connect workers with consumers um, or, or with clients, and they span a range of sectors. Uh, the most, possibly the most familiar and visible types of digital labor platforms are those where um, you know we see we see their workers on our streets all the time. So ride-hailing platforms like Uber uh, and Lyft, as well as delivery platforms, food delivery, grocery delivery platforms. Um, Cloudwork platforms are in the same category. Um, they, they 
adopt, they employ a similar business model. But the thing that distinguishes cloud work platforms is that the work that is done on them can be done from anywhere in the world, theoretically, anywhere with an internet connection. So it's remote work. Um, but what is similar about cloud work platforms and uh, location-based digital labor platforms is that uh, they usually use this independent contractor model and this piece rate model where workers are paid per task. Uh, and they also they also derive some value from this labor process. So uh, whether it's charging fees to users, to workers and customers, or whether it's taking a cut, a percentage of the uh, transaction. Um, and they also, to some degree, exert some control or management over the labor process through rating systems, for instance, through determining the prices workers can charge for their work. And and if we think about these kind of, um, these cloud work platforms, what are the kinds of labor that are being transacted by them? What are the people who work via these platforms, what are they actually doing on a day-to-day basis? There is an enormous array of types of tasks that are done on cloud work platforms. Some cloud work platforms mediate a hugely diverse range of work types, um, and some are more specialized. But we can we can organize them into broad categories. Possibly the biggest one is micro work, um, also often called crowd work or crowdsourcing. And this is very, very short-term tasks usually that are paid very small amounts, perhaps a matter of cents. Um, and the tasks might take seconds or minutes to complete. Those tasks can range from data um, labeling and annotating, Um, you know, for instance, telling the the platform what is contained in an image. Um, They could also be responding to surveys. Uh, And then other types of cloud work platforms mediate Uh, more professional services. So you get online freelancing platforms like Fiverr and Upwork. Um, Those include a lot of creative services like design, um, uh, software development. Uh, There's also user testing. And then there are translation and transcription platforms. And then, you know, with the more specialized platforms, you can even get things like health services and, and professional services counseling um uh and other mental health services so it's a it's a dizzying array of of different types of work that uh happen on cloud work platforms yeah definitely and it's amazing to think of just kind of how this idea of the detachment of work from place to a certain extent has been taken to in so many different directions and is increasingly spreading out to to numerous different kind of areas and sectors um my next question i guess is really difficult to answer and i think you've kind of in your last response you've kind of almost just touched on why this is so difficult to answer but kind of how big is this economy how many kinds of people are finding work through these kinds of platforms what do we know and what do we what do we not know look you're right that it's very difficult to answer and one of the there are a couple of reasons for that one is that 
platforms themselves are cagey about about releasing that kind of data. They don't necessarily want us to know how many workers, um, how large their workforce is and how it's distributed. That's especially the case for location-based platforms. It's not always true for some cloud work platforms because some cloud work platforms like to boast about the size of their workforce. Um, and from that, we know that a lot of the big cloud work platforms have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of registered workers. Um, platforms like Amazon Mechanical Turk, AppN, ClickWorker, um, and some of the big Chinese platforms um, like Zhubaji have just uh, enormous, enormous numbers of registered workers. But that doesn't fully answer your question because out of those numbers, we don't know how many people are regularly and actively performing tasks on these platforms um, and how many hours per week they're working on the platforms. So it's very difficult to get a good estimate of the, um, the real size of the cloud work workforce and the real value of cloud work. People are also kind of dropping in and out of cloud work all the time. So it's a very fluid workforce. The best estimate we have comes from our colleagues at the OAI, the, the um, Online Labor Observatory. Um, they have most recently estimated that the cloud work workforce is 163 million. Um, that was in 2021. And it's growing very rapidly. So it's likely that that number has has increased since then. 163 million people. That's a conservative estimate, Robbie. So um, <laughs> it's likely to be higher. Okay, amazing. Um, and so within this, what kind of what kind of dynamics are there within kind of the functioning of cloud platforms? So we talk about this figure of kind of a rough conservative figure around 163 million people. Where are the majority of these workers based and where are the majority of the employers or to use the platform speak uh, requesters, where are they based? So that's a really interesting question. Um, I I'm a geographer by training, so I'm, I'm really interested in this question of the geography of cloud work because the defining feature of cloud work, of course, is that anybody can do it from anywhere. So we might intuitively think that geography is not an important factor, that the cloud work workforce is dispersed all over the world evenly, that we've got this planetary labor market where place is not important to participating in the labor market. But actually what research is increasingly showing is that there are specific spatialities and geographies of cloud work labor, that cloud work labor is concentrated in certain parts of the world. Um, and it's predominantly concentrated in the global south and low income countries. Um, a huge proportion of the cloud work labor forces in South Asia, India and Bangladesh uh, in Pakistan, as well as um, Africa. And then there are a lot of cloud workers in Eastern Europe as well. Um, Serbia is a big cloud work market. Ukraine has been a, a, a big cloud work market. 
Um, we also know from research from um, the International Labour Organization as, as well as the Online Labour Observatory that the majority of CloudWork clients, uh, sometimes called requesters, are based in wealthy countries, um, the UK and the US predominantly um, have the have the greatest concentration of, of CloudWork clients. So there is this very uneven geography of CloudWork, despite the fact that it is technically, the labor process is untethered from, from geography. And, and that occurs for a number of, of reasons, which we don't fully, you know, we, have, we don't fully understand yet. So we kind of have this pattern of the majority of workers based in the global south, uh, developing countries, as you might term them, uh, and you have uh, the requesters or clients based in advanced economies. Why do we observe this pattern? In a lot of ways, it's a continuation of um, of you know colonial and and neo-colonial dynamics. Um, so there, there's you know for many. <laughs> many centuries there's been this uneven um flow of of resources from the global south to the global north and i think that we can think of data and and digital commodities as um an extension or or a, a reproduction of this pattern um Partly, of course, it's because workers in the global south can can compete with with workers in the global north on the basis of pay, right? Living costs are lower, um, and and workers in the global south might be able to accept lower pay for, for the equivalent work, and that's what a lot of platforms tell us when they justify the fact that. Um, that workers in poorer countries earn, you know, significantly less. And it's, I think it's interesting to to link from that point into the idea of, because you have the idea that you have countries through policy trying to kind of allow their population to partake in this global com- uh, global economy, but the medium from, from by which they do this is through these platforms, and these platforms are owned by private corporations they're owned within private hands they're not state-run institutions and what is the role of these platforms how much power do they have uh in shaping things like working conditions can we tease that out how much do we know about that there's a very monopolistic dynamic so even though there are millions of workers all over the world involved in this type of work, it is controlled by a tiny handful of huge multinational companies. And those companies are geographically concentrated, particularly in the United States, um, with some in in Europe, um, and one big platform uh, based in Australia, Appen. Um, but there's also this pervasive narrative, the, uh, pervasive narratives that accompany this um, that serve to kind of obfuscate the power of platforms and, and the market concentration of platforms to quite a large extent. Uh, and these are around the idea of the platform as being this neutral, um, this neutral kind of infrastructure where 
different people can participate on their own terms. So the platforms like to minimize the amount of control they have over economic activity, the amount of control they have over the relationships between the worker and the client. Um, you often hear this rhetoric around workers uh, being their own boss, having flexibility to choose how they work, what kind of work they do. This is the promise of the platform economy uh, and also very much the promise of the cloud work economy. But in reality, we know that platforms have an enormous amount of control. One, because of this monopolistic um, situation where, where uh, one company is, is really controlling and dominating a huge portion of the market, uh, but also because of the digital infrastructures that, that platforms put in place. Um, they set the terms of engagement. Uh, the design of the platform has a huge impact on the outcomes, on the experience of users. Kelly Halson, former head of cloud work at Fairwork. And we'll be hearing more from Kelly throughout the next few episodes of the podcast. Next, we head to Colombia to hear the story of one worker who makes his living on the microwork platform Appen. But before we do that, I just want to take this opportunity to give a bit more context about the worker interviews in this series. Over this series, we'll hear a whole host of interviews with different workers in different places around the world. Finding these workers isn't easy. There's no one workplace I can go to to find them, so I had to turn to the digital meeting spaces and forums where workers gather to share things like information, support and solidarity. I've messaged more workers for this series than I can count. Only a handful respond, and even less agree to an interview. I think it's important to consider who feels comfortable going on a podcast. The precarity surrounding cloud work is huge. You're not given the protections that you would get as an employee, and your income can be taken away much more easily. As a result, a lot of people just don't feel comfortable to talk about their experiences. You also need to feel comfortable in your English. The majority of workers I spoke to for this series are based in the global north. They're also mostly men. Many also have stopped working on online platforms. This series is not an attempt at representing the breadth of experiences of working on cloud work platforms, but at telling individual stories and providing snapshots as to what it can be like for different individuals in different parts of the world. With this in mind, let's now turn to Javier in Bogota, Colombia. Okay, but I wondered if we could start off with and if you could just introduce us, uh, tell us a bit about yourself, uh, your name, how old you are uh, and whereabouts you live. Okay, perfect. Um, so yeah, yeah, I can tell you my history just very quickly. So I am, my name is Javier. Um, I am a Colombian guy. I, I am 23 years old. I was born and grown in Colombia, never lived in Medellin <laughs> until today and probably maybe in the future, not because I wanted, but because the opportunity, I don't have any opportunities to get out for now. So um, since I was very um, little, just growing, I always had the worry of getting a job 
because uh, in this kind of developing countries like Colombia and every uh, the world, South America in general, is not easy to get a job. It's not easy to uh, get to work and to get experience. It's very hard uh, to get into the market. And my parents um, never worked for uh, industries. They have like their their own business. So. Uh, I was born in a very like poor family. Uh, we, we were trying to survive and like working and just growing and studying. So I was more focused in studying since I was very little and then worrying for the jobs in the future. So after I got 18, um, I started looking for remote jobs just like in, in internet because I, I spent most of my time gaming and in and, and computers. So I was thinking, hey, maybe I can get some work from here, right? So <laughs> I started looking and a friend of mine received a call from Appen and she told me, hey, um, this company is looking for remote people, uh, speaking English, why don't you try? I tried and they called me and we started working. And when you start, you start working, um, what's that initial process like? Like, so you get a call from the company and they, they agree to take you on and you sign up to the platform and then you're let loose on it. You're let loose on this platform. Uh, for someone who's never used it, can you describe what it's like um, working on app? What does your average day look like? Um, and how is your work kind of structured? There are two types of projects in Appin. The more common type of project, it's the projects that are like for uh, short recordings or of things like voice recordings, photos, videos, they can ask you a lot of that. Uh, those projects are horrible, are awful because they ask you like, let's say they ask you for a hundred photos for $3. And it's not a hundred photos for $3. They ask you a hundred photos for uh, a three dollars for a hundred approved photos. So you send a hundred photos, and they say, "Okay, so these twenty photos are not good for us. So you have to take them again if you want three dollars." So it's usually a lot of work. It can take up to a day to complete those kind of projects. That has been the same since the start, and it's just three dollars, and and they can take like two months to pay you that money. So those projects are awful for the people that think working it up in is easy or great. Usually uh, nine projects are that kind of projects and one project is one of the serious projects I were working on. So the serious projects are usually 20 hours per week. They list that. This project is going to be 20 hours per week. They tell you they will pay you right now $3 per hour and you have to complete, when you click to apply, uh, you have to complete a lot of qualifications. So here it comes the first problem. When you apply, sometimes you apply, you click apply, they ask you a couple of questions and let's go. And when you click continue, they give you a quiz instantly. And they also give you sometimes a, a list of white lines that is gonna be more than 20 pages. And you have to carefully review that and complete the quiz at the same time in less than 30 minutes. Um, so yeah, that's usually the way you apply and you get into a project that happens. Let's say you're on Twitter and you're browsing through your newsfeed and the reason why the feed you get is devoid of content that might be, might be violent, might be racist or potentially upsetting is because people like Javier are on hand to sort through that content. Whilst nowadays AI can do a pretty good job of identifying harmful content, when it falls down, people like Javier are there to make the final decision on what content is moderated. 
And a large amount of the work on Appen is this type of content moderation. So you qualify content given uh, different like uh, parameters, but it can be very different. Some projects can look, let's say, for violence. Some projects can look, let's say, um, to qualify content like using different categorizations. Like if this project is, is this post about food? Is this about uh, social media? Is this about noobs? Is this about criminals? Things like that. So it can be just qualifying, usually qualifying posts in different social media. And you get the post, you, you have a, a special tool they have, and you get the post and you get a lot of, um, you get the, the desired parameters and you can click in the parameters and you select which parameters do the post um, like compete or that can be categorized in and you can click in continue. These projects are being uh, like monitorized. So you get your time uh, looked by the company. After you open the tool, they are monitoring your time. So they know how much time you're working and they pay you based on that. So yeah, that's the nature of the project. Sometimes, or most of the time, the tool is not recording the time like accordingly. So usually you work four hours and they just count three hours and they say that's all. And you have, okay, so this is the important part. You have to meet uh, parameters of a speed and quality. So you have to do, they, they told you from the start, you have to do uh, this number of posts per hour or per minute or per um, quarter, everything. So let's say they can give you, okay, so you have to do 30 posts per, per hour and you cannot take more than three minutes per post and you cannot uh, fall down a, a quality of less than 60% uh, based on the, their numbers. So if you don't meet those numbers, you will be uh, expelled out for the project in less than a week. And, and what's it like to do this kind of work? For someone who's never done it before, you're sat at your computer often for really long hours doing this kind of work. And what was your experience of doing it? It's extremely boring. <laughs> it's extremely boring. It's just like, um, I mean, it can be somewhat fun because you get a lot of notice, you, you get a lot of news, you get a lot of things that you were not aware of about what is happening in the world. Usually if you get obviously natural posts that are going to be like news or people posting about the things about happening in their countries. So you get, uh, you have to read everything. You have to read carefully and review every link, every photo, every video. So you get a lot of information you were not aware of in the past, but it's very boring. And also when you are pressed up to, to work like in a, in a desired velocity or speed, you cannot really like uh, take a lot from it. You just want to qualify it and that's all let's go continue because i have i have these parameters to get paid right mm. so um, it's a very boring job you have to be in in the in the computer for the whole day and usually for four hours is the minimum you have to work every day even working four hours can be really really slow and can be really really boring you're not really learning about anything like uh, improving an ability or talking with someone or getting like information about what you're really doing in the moment or the clients you're working for. So you feel like you are like stuck, like stuck in the same thing again and again and again and again, and you can get tired really fast uh, about that. Does it ever get lonely? Lonely? 
to be honest, for me, I have been living with my wife uh, since I was 17. We got married like this week, this year. Um, but I was living with her, so I was not lonely. Also, she was working for Appen at the same time as me. So we were both working at the same time in the house. So I, I never felt lonely. Uh, but to be honest, like work-wise, you don't have workmates, you don't have boss, you don't have supervisors, you only have a computer that is looking at you and that's all. The positive thing is that they don't ask you to activate your camera, like in some companies, so they can be better actually than some companies. But I think the job currently you can get very lonely if you're alone. If you're alone in the house and if you're a lonely person, it can be even depressing because of the nature of the jobs that some of them are, you're going to see horrible things sometimes about massacres and you can see really, really graphical videos or graphical uh, photos. So yeah, I, I think this is a, this can be dangerous if the person is, is alone in the house and every day working in the same again and again and again. It's something that, that can really, uh, I, really, I think it can really damage you in the long mm. time. And you were working during the pandemic. Um, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about what that was like. To be honest with you, it was great. It was great because most of the people I know lost their jobs. Colombia is not known for having a great economy. So uh, not going to the office means not working at all because most people uh, don't want or don't really have a computer. Uh, I mean, for the basic jobs, obviously, obviously supervisors uh, and CTOs and, and the important people of the company are going to have money and they are going to have all the computers. But most of the people, uh, the basic workforce, let, let's say people that clean houses, people that get deliveries, people that work in restaurants, that was close. A lot of people lost their jobs. So I was very grateful that I have the opportunity to work from home in the moment. And to be honest with you, when COVID hit, uh, nothing changed for Appen. It was exactly the same. We don't got, we didn't got any kind of notice. We didn't got pay cut in the moment. We didn't got less job. Actually, we got more job that we have in the past. So more, more, more projects opened, more extra hours every week. We got extra, extra hours every week, and that was a lot of work. And obviously, the, the more we work, the more money we had. So in the moment, my family uh, was going really bad. The family of my wife was going really bad in the moment too. So uh, we worked really hard in that time, and we got to like help everyone that was in our family. Uh, so yeah, in the moment, to be honest with you, I am not going to to uh, to say that everything was horrible. But in this time, even if I was working like a crazy man, I was very happy to have the opportunity to work in because most people I knew was really depressing about the the fact that they were uh, like passing hunger because they don't have money to buy food. So the the fact that I was tired of working, but I was allowing myself to get food for me and my family, that made me very happy in the moment. And how many hours a day were you working during that period? <clears throat> to be honest with you, I was working more than 12 hours just because I needed, I needed to help my family with rent, my my own rent, the rent for my, my family, uh, the food for everyone, the, the parents of my wife are old, are, are very old, they have 60 years, so they cannot work anymore a lot. So we had to help them too. So it was a lot of people actually, it was, it was more than eight persons at the same time. So it's a lot of people. So I needed to work a lot. And 
I'm, I, I usually like to feel like if I'm working, I'm getting something. So I also worked hard because I wanted to buy like things for me, right? So <laughs> not just helping, but also helping myself. Uh, you cannot help others if you don't help yourself. So obviously I was aware of that. So I was working more than 12 hours every day, every day, like the work, like that. I mean, including the weekends. Mm-hmm. I mean, we could not get out. So usually we rested in house, but I was working more than 12 hours every day. Maximum I worked was six, six, uh, 16 hours. Uh, that was normal too, but usually more than 12 hours every day if I was allowed to. Uh, and I want to talk about pay. Um, so I wonder if you could tell us um, what your rate of pay was when you initially started on Appen um, and has that changed over time? And if so, how has it changed? So yeah, when I started for working for Appen, uh, the average salary was nine. per hour, US dollars, uh, for every project, not less than that, and even more for some projects that were harder. Um, After a couple of months, they bought another company and they lowered the payment by $1, so it was $8.5. And after three years of being stable in $8.5, they lowered the payment to $3 per hour and, and an average for every project. No project is paying more than that right now. There is not, uh, even if it's harder. So to be honest with you, I'm not willing to go and do these world quizzes again, the review uh, 100 pages guidelines. The projects right now are even harder than when I started, more twice as harder, I will say. They are asking you, for example, this is something that might be very interesting to analyze. And is that when I started, for example, for one project that I, that I was, that I say that that was the hardest one, I had to do 90 post per hour. And by the end of the project, they were asking for the double of that. So right now, when they invite me, they send me that they are asking three times that. So they are looking for 300 posts per hour. And and that's three times for three less, three times less pay. So So if I understand you, there's been a reduction in the wages, but also an intensification in the amount of work you're expected to do. Exactly. And the quality also. Yeah. So they become like... They say, basically, they say, like, we want to pay less, but we want more quality and we want more jobs. Javier no longer works on Appen, having moved to a remote job for a company based in the US. But the process of leaving Appen was protracted and difficult. And I wanted to ask about the process of leaving. So obviously, you were working for Appen for three years um, and the wages slowly slowly went down and down uh, and they ended up at three dollars an hour and what did it feel like to leave Appen how did that make you feel that the wages had just gone down so much Um, and how did you feel about how that was communicated and your relationship with the company to be honest with you Robbie it was very sad it was very it's a very a, a very sad process i obviously was aware of everything i'm a really i'm a person that is really worried about the future and the job and the finance of my house i have never uh had to pass hunger in my life to be honest with you i am really grateful for that but i'm very worried to have that experience in the future so i'm always thinking about my finance about how i'm going to handle everything how i'm going to save money and how i'm going to uh, buy a house for the future so I can be more uh, flexible with me. 
when this started happening, I obviously noticed that I had five projects and then suddenly three, suddenly two. So I desperately started to looking for another job that I ha I'm happy to say I got it before the disaster. Um, I was living with my uh, with the parents of my wife because they had COVID, so we had to take care of them and they are, were very old. Hopefully, uh, uh, unfortunately, uh, none of them died, so they are, they are fine. <laughs> um, when the process started, that they started shorting the jobs, no more extra hours every week, no more pro new projects, uh, and the, not, it's not only that they don't the wage, they also started to publish less and less projects. And so I, I started to feel very sad about it. Like I feel like I was betrayed. It was like a betrayal. Like I have worked for you for three years and suddenly you're telling me that I, I don't meet quality requirements after working extra hours, more than a thousand hours. And you told me I'm not meeting at this time, even when I'm working less than before. So yeah, it was like a betrayal. I, I feel really sad about it. It was a really depressing moment, um, but I already had hope because I was smart, uh, smart enough to uh, Get, have another projects like personal projects like studying a lot and looking for a professional work in, in myself outside of Appen. So I had like a B plan. But I'm sure that a normal person working 200 hours per month is not going to have a, is usually not going to have a B plan. So uh, I, I can only imagine the amount of people that have, that was working for Appen as a full time job and just suddenly uh, are in the street, right? So I imagine that that's really sad. I, I think that's really sad. Right now, uh, if you ask me, it is like I was—I have never worked in Appen. It's like three years. Yeah, I worked for this for these projects, but I never worked for Appen. To be honest, I never in the three years I never received a call from Appen. I never spoke with something from Appen directly. Never. Uh, I never receive a call. I never receive a direct email from them. I mean, I never. I mean, I, I don't really think Appen. Think Appen knows I'm, I'm exist. <laughs> they. They. I never receive a direct email for a person in the company. Just automated tickets and emails uh, that were uh, forwarded for a lot of people, and that's all. I, I. I don't have any connection from Appen. So yeah, it's a very sad process. It was very. Uh, depressing when I ended, but I was prepared. Fortunately, I was preparing myself for a couple of months before. Thanks to Javier and Kelly for taking the time to talk to me. At Fair Work, we believe that all work can and should be characterized by fair pay, fair conditions, fair contracts, fair management, and fair representation. Platforms ultimately have the power to improve standards and the ability to choose to. Many platforms operate in numerous countries around the world. Almost every country, every city and every worker is unique. Many of the issues experienced by workers are transnational. Platforms often operate across multiple countries and the practices that they employ have huge impacts on the lives of gig workers around the globe. Platforms can take a proactive approach to ensure that the work they provide is fair and decent. We're actively campaigning to improve conditions for gig workers around the world and hold platforms to account. You can find out more at fair.work.
This episode was written and produced by Robbie Warren. Our music was composed by Louis Bullets.